afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Please note that this conference is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shute. Dr. Shute is the Medical Director and Senior Consultant with Greenfield Health System in Portland, Oregon. Greenfield is an innovative medical practice whose mission is delivery of superior clinical quality and patient service and spread of best practices through advocacy and teaching. Previously, Dr. Shute served as the Medical Director of Acumentra Health, the Oregon Quality Improvement Organization. There, Dr. Shute was responsible for oversight of all clinical activities and led the state's quality improvement activities. Dr. Shute, you may go ahead. Thank you, Brandon. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is practiced in a recent, uh, published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being on January 16th. The article for that call will be Antibiotics and Topical Nasal Steroids for Treatment of Acute Sinusitis. Please join us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Dina Bravada, first author uh, of the article, Using Pedometers to Increase Physical Activity and Improve Health, published in the November 21st issue of JAMA. Dr. Bravada is a senior research scholar at the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research, Stanford University, and is a practicing internist at the California Pacifical Medical Center in San Francisco. Her training includes an undergraduate degree from Yale University, an MD from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and residency training in internal medicine, uh, and a Master of Science in Health Research and Policy from Standard University. Dr. Bravata's expertise is in evidence synthesis and meta-analysis, and her primary focus areas are in obesity treatment, prevention, and disaster preparedness. Dr. Bravada's ongoing studies include a systemic review designed to evaluate the health benefits and harms of organic versus conventionally farmed foods, and BRACES, a bariatric research and cohort evaluation study. This is a study of clinical outcomes of patients receiving laparoscopic bariatric surgery. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Bravada with us today to discuss her recent article. So welcome, Dr. Bravada. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. As the moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Bravada's research with a goal of driving performance improvement on this article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author about the research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Together, Dr. Bravada and I will help you translate what's in the paper into changes applicable to your practice. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Bravata will present for about 10 to 15 minutes summarizing her findings. I will then take about five minutes to draw out some implications for real-world practice settings and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. Uh, 
Uh, it is very important uh, that you participate in these calls. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others in the field the significance of the findings and the steps you may take in using this information towards the improvement of care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but also in offering up your experience in this area will be very helpful to the call. There are between 95 and 100 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with multiple individuals participating on each line. Some members of the media may be present today on a background-only basis. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author-in-the-room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Bravada, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Bravada. Thank you, David. I'd also like to begin by thanking IHI and JAMA for the opportunity to participate in this webcast and to thank all the listeners for taking the time to call in and to be part of this conversation. Um, You've heard a little bit about me, but by way of brief introduction, I was hoping to tell you a little bit about my work and my role in this project. Um, as you heard from David, I wear two hats. I'm a staff researcher um, in the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research at Stanford, where my main area of research interest relates to diet and exercise for obesity treatment and prevention. And the type of studies that I primarily work on are systematic reviews, like the pedometer study that we're going to talk about today. When I'm not at Stanford, I have a private practice in general internal medicine in San Francisco. And like most internists, I spend much of my day with patients talking about disease prevention in general and in particular try to provide practical, readily usable advice for ways to increase my patients' attention to diet and exercise. I have uh, numerous patients, as I'm sure many of the internists in the crowd um, do, who are relatively sedentary, who have been seeking ways, and I had been seeking ways to help them increase their physical activity when I first heard about pedometers. Pedometers were becoming increasingly popular, and I wanted to know if they worked and whether I should recommend them to my patients. I looked at the primary literature and found that it really seemed ripe for doing a systematic review. However, um, I am not an exercise physiologist, and I sought the help from someone uh, more expert than me in that area and was able to convince John Sherrard, who's now at the University of Minnesota, to help with the project. We then uh, conjoled and charmed the rest of our colleagues into helping on the project, and I'd like to point out that all of them volunteered their time and expertise for this study. The purpose of our study was to evaluate whether using a pedometer increases physical activity and improves health, such as weight loss, reductions in blood pressure, and improvements in cholesterol. We performed a systematic review of the literature. The objective was to include every published study that has evaluated the use of pedometers as a tool to motivate physical activity. We excluded those studies that sealed the pedometer so that participants could not see the number of steps that they walked per day, or studies that used a pedometer as a means of measuring physical activity. Um, so, for example, there were some studies that used pedometers to measure the effects of a drug on an individual's ability to be physically active, and we excluded those. Um, we reviewed over 2,200 studies, and in the end, we found 26 studies that met our inclusion criteria. 
they included over 2,700 participants, and eight of them were randomized control trials. The main study design of the randomized control trials was that there were intervention participants who wore the pedometer and were encouraged to view and record their daily step counts, but they were then compared with control participants who wore pedometers that were sealed so that they could not see their own step counts. The other 18 studies were observational studies, and um, there we were really looking at changes um, in physical activity from before using the pedometer to after using the pedometer. The average length of the pedometer interventions was 18 weeks, but ranged very widely from three weeks to one very long study that was over 100 weeks long. The average age of the participants was 49 years old, and 85% of them were women. Most participants were overweight with a baseline BMI of 30. They had, on average, normal blood pressure and were relatively inactive. Um, the mean uh, baseline physical activity was 7,500 steps per day. However, the baseline activity did range very widely in our participants from about 2,000 to about 12,000 steps per day. We had um, four or five main findings that I'd like to review. The first is that pedometer users increased their physical activity. I'd like to talk first about the randomized control trial results. We wanted to know how much more did the 155 pedometer users increase their activity in the intervention groups from baseline compared with the 122 controlled participants. And we found that at the end of the intervention, pedometer users increased their physical activity by about 2,500 steps per day more than the control participants. As for the observational studies, we evaluated the change in steps per day from baseline among the pedometer users and found that they increased their physical activity by about 2,000 steps per day. And 2,000 steps is equivalent to about a mile and, depending upon how fast you walk, about 100 calories. We found that having a step goal was a critical component of being able to increase physical activity when using a pedometer. In particular, we were interested in evaluating whether the popular 10,000-step-per-day goal was better or worse than any other goal or not having a goal. And we found that pedometer users with any goal, either the 10,000-step-per-day goal or um, individualized step goals, um, increased their physical activity, whereas, and this is really critical, those pedometer users without a goal did not increase their physical activity. And I think that that makes intuitive sense because if you get a pedometer and put it on and at the end of the day find that you've walked a certain amount, four or 5,000 steps, whatever, without a goal, you may not have any idea if that's too little or too much or just the right amount of activity. We also found that the use of a step diary was consistently associated with improvements in physical activity. And again, I think that makes sense because people, by writing down their steps um, on a daily basis, are able to see trends over time and to see how adding a little extra walking, uh, taking um, a hike on the weekends or something, is able to increase their physical activity. 
We found that pedometer interventions that take place in the workplace were much less likely to result in improvements in physical activity than interventions that took place in non-workplace settings. And this is likely to have been because the people who chose to participate in the workplace interventions already had relatively high baseline physical activity. So the way I interpret this result is that people who are already active are likely taking advantage of the workplace interventions, which is great. However, if the objective of the workplace intervention is to increase the physical activity of the entire workforce, then the people running workplace interventions might want to specifically target their more sedentary employees. We found that um, pedometer users lost weight and lowered their blood pressure. Specifically, their BMI decreased by about uh, 0.38, which would have been enough to move, uh, on average, our participants from the obese category to the overweight category. We found that the weight loss that was experienced by pedometer users was independent of increases in physical activity. So that suggests that participation in the pedometer intervention either increased activity that wasn't being measured by the pedometer, so perhaps they were swimming or lifting weights, or resulted in a decreased caloric intake or both. And uh, having worn a pedometer myself, I can readily see how that might happen. For example, by you know putting on the pedometer, people begin to monitor their health status, and it could certainly make some folks more aware of their total health behaviors so that in addition to motivating you to take the stairs rather than the elevator, it might also make you think twice about eating that extra cookie or so. We also found that pedometer users decreased their systolic blood pressure by just under four millimeters of mercury. And this is really a remarkable finding for a couple of reasons. First, the participants in our study did not have very high blood pressure to begin with. Also, when you consider the range of blood pressure reductions that are seen in quality improvement interventions for patients with hypertension, our reduction of about four millimeters of mercury is right in the ballpark of those. For example, um, some colleagues of mine recently performed a systematic review of quality improvement strategies for hypertension, such as provider education programs and disease management initiatives, and they found a median reduction in systolic blood pressure of 4.5 millimeters of mercury, you know, obviously very similar to our results. Among the pedometer users in our review, the greatest reductions in blood pressure were found, not surprisingly, among those participants with the highest baseline blood pressure, and among those with the greatest increases in physical activity, but interestingly, not among those with the greatest weight loss. And in particular, we found this last result to be very interesting. And I have to say that when I am faced now with a sedentary patient who has been frustrated by an inability to lose weight, I point to this result and emphasize that by engaging in physical activity, they can improve their health, namely reduce their blood pressure, without necessarily resulting in weight loss. Um, I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about some of the key limitations of our study. First, the sample sizes, particularly of the randomized control trials, was small, um, limiting our ability to do very much in the way of um, subgroup analyses. Second, 
relatively few of the studies evaluated the use of pedometers for more than three or four months at a time. So the extent to which pedometers are able to motivate physical activity over the long term is really not that well understood. Third, we were interested in evaluating the extent to which exercise counseling and other aspects of the pedometer interventions were associated with changes in physical activity. However, given the really enormous differences among the included pedometer interventions and the relatively small number of studies reporting similar characteristics, we were not able to determine the effects of specific components of the exercise programs. Clearly, future studies of pedometers are needed to really specifically evaluate each of these components on um, changes in physical activity. Um, also, just by being in a study, the participants may have changed their physical activity in ways that they wouldn't have if they were just wearing the pedometer at home or on their own. However, this type of what would be called a Hawthorne effect would presumably have affected both arms, especially of the randomized control trials. And so, so that's not as likely, at least in the RCTs, to have had um, a big effect on our results. And finally, the fact that 85% of the participants were women may limit the generalizability of our findings. I have no particular reason to suspect that men would be motivated differently than women by information coming from a pedometer, but clearly I think this is another area where future studies should attempt to enroll, you know, balanced sample sizes of both men and women. So... Despite these limitations, I, in terms of my recommendations and conclusions from our study, when I'm talking to my patients, um, particularly when faced with a sedentary patient, I now recommend that they use a pedometer and that they try to walk 10,000 steps per day and that they use a step diary. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Bravada, both for your um, research and your great summary. Um, you know, I think this is very exciting uh, because obviously obesity and sedentary lifestyle are growing public health problems. But they're also very challenging to treat uh, because they, they involve a, a large component of you know, patient participation to make any progress. And I think that's something that we as physicians often feel um, that we're sort of limited in, in our ability to impact that. So this is wonderful um, to see some positive results. Um, and, you know, I think the literature, uh, especially Dr. Wagner's literature on the CARE model, clearly says patient self-management and how we support that in our practices is key to improving outcomes. And, again, I think primary care practices are often very challenged to create and sustain the infrastructure required to do good patient self-management support. And this intervention certainly gives us one specific example of something we can do that's simple, cheap, and efficient, and also raises some interesting um, ideas about other techniques we can use to reinforce exercise prescriptions. So, again, great work. Thank you. Thank you. Now uh, we want to turn and talk a little bit more about the, what the research suggests that we can change in clinical practices. That is to say, what can clinicians, healthcare professionals, and healthcare systems do uh, based um, on this research uh, to improve the outcomes for our patients? Where do we begin in terms of turning these findings into better patient care? And with that question, now I'd like to turn to questions from our callers.
Uh, your questions can include how to use the information to make improvements in your practice. And please feel free to share examples of what you may have already done, either in your practice or in other research activities. Uh, Brandon, let's go ahead and uh, open the phone lines. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please dial star 1 on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please dial the pound sign or the hash key. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset first before dialing the numbers. Once again, if there are any questions, please dial star 1 on your touchtone phone. And we have one question on the line from Penny McKinley from Iowa State University. Please go ahead. I was wondering if there's a certain brand of pedometer that you recommend for this. Yeah, that's a great question. So there, um, the the brand of pedometer called Yamax. So that's a Japanese brand. Y A M A X. The Yamax DigiWalker is probably the brand um, that has been the best studied for both reliability and validity testing. And um, sixteen of the included studies uh, used the Yamax brand. Um, that said, we found no difference between studies that use the Amex brand and other studies in terms of in improvements in physical activity. And I think that what a lot of people sort of find anecdotally is that there, there may be some, um, especially after, you know, you've been wearing it for a while and you drop it on the floor, that some of the pedometers will either begin to kind of overcount or, or are undercounting steps. And so if you have patients um, where what, one of the things that um, is kind of a practice suggestion is just to ask people to calibrate it when they first start wearing it, whatever the brand is, um, so that if they walk 10 steps, they should count, the, the pedometer should count 10 steps, and if it, you know, either overestimates by 5 or 10% or underestimates, that they should then consider that um, when they're, you know, they should either then increase their goal by that much or decrease their goal by that much. In terms of kind of other practical suggestions for a particular brand of pedometer, um, you know, the market has all kinds of pedometers available, some very cheap ones, you know, in the kind of less than $5 range. And uh, in general, um, what I've kind of heard or read about those is that they tend not to be very accurate and also not very durable. So really, if you just sort of drop it once or twice, you're out of luck. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, there are some very expensive um, gizmos that do all kinds of things. They, you know, calculate the number of calories that you've burned and estimate how far you've walked. And f again, from what I can see from the evidence, there's no, there's no evidence that that extra information is going to motivate physical activity more than just having the step count. I think the other thing that I, um, when I'm recommending pedometers to my patients, um, something to look for is a cover. Um, there are a bunch of brands that don't have a cover, and so when you, you're walking around during the day, if you if you bump the pedometer against your desk or something, you reset the set count, and, you know, so then you're back to zero, and obviously that then defeats the whole purpose of wearing a pedometer in the first place. So so I think that there are plenty of brands, um, the Yamax or other ones, that are pretty durable, have a cover, provide just the step count in an easy-to-use way and are really kind of in the $25 to $30 range. Great. Thank you, Dr. Bravada. Did that answer your question? Yes, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Great. 
Brendan, do we have another caller on the line? We have a couple more questions that have come up uh, from Qualis Health. We have Sharon Eloranta on the line. Please go ahead. Oh, hi. Hi, uh, Dave. Hey, Sharon. How you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, um, we've got some questions here. All of us that are around here have tried the little freebie pedometers that you sometimes get, you know, at open enrollment or whatever, and have, people get really frustrated with those because they don't seem to be accurate and just wondered what the advice would be on that. And also, we're not really actually sure how they work. Okay, well, um, it, you know, in terms of the not being accurate, most pedometers, even even if they're not if they're not accurate, they tend to be consistent. And so, um, so if what you want is that when you walk ten steps, that it counts ten steps, and you're going to be frustrated by seeing anything that's different than that, then you should probably get a different pedometer, one that not just the freebie one, but one that you go and buy. But in general, most pedometers, even if they're not quite accurate, they tend to be consistently inaccurate. And so that's why the sort of if you have a, a hair trigger one that really just overcounts consistently by 10% or 20%, that you would just then rec- recognize that and either increase your goal for the day accordingly or when you look at it, you know, sort of discount the number of steps that it's actually giving you. I don't know. Does that does that seem helpful or satisfying? Yeah, I, I think that works pretty well. I know that when I was there at IHI, IHI actually gave out pedometers to the staff, and um, one of my fellow fellows was getting widely different readings from a, a just standard walk she would take every day from her T-stop to a certain spot. Huh. So it, it was just interesting. And we were just, you know, do they really work by, like, just moving up and down, the motion of stepping or shaking? Yes, that's right. So so most of them, there are kind of generally two mechanisms, but most of them have a spring or, or a little mo- like a monofilament that's attached to a pendulum. And so when you step, the you know, sets the spring, which then trips the counter. And so um so any activity that's in is in that direction that's going to that's going to make that spring load is going to trip the counter. So for example, there's some people who um when they're driving their car, if they have a really bumpy car or poor suspension or whatever, will ha- will it'll trip the pedometer a lot. Um in fact, there was one study that wasn't included in ours, but a pedometer study uh evaluated the Amish and um, in Pennsylvania, and um, <laughs> they had a lot of false positives because um, the horse and buggy really did a number on the pedometer. So, well, that's interesting. But but I think it circles back to what's what's the role in the pedometer of improving health, and it's motivating behavior change. Mm-hmm. So I think that supports your assertion that uh, if it's ten percent off, does that really make a difference? Uh, that probably the absolute number is less important than focusing our patients' attention on their physical activity. That's exactly right. Yeah, great. Sharon, any more questions from your uh, cohorts there? No, thank you very much. Okay. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, Brandon, do we have another call? Yes, uh, quite a few. We have uh, from Southeast Michigan, Alice Emmerich on the line. Please go ahead. Hi, how are you today? Great. Thank you, Alice. How are you? Good. Um, Have you had any um, studies or any success with uh, diabetic patients? 
Yes, um, there were a couple included studies that actually enrolled um, diabetic patients in particular um, and were looking at the effects of increasing physical activity on glycemic control, um, triglycerides and other lipids, uh, weight, uh, blood pressure parameters. So, um, yeah, there there is a small body of evidence um, of people specifically using pedometers among people with diabetes and um, and uh, I don't rem- I, I can't quote for you exactly the improvement seen in that study but as with um, almost all of the studies it demonstrated increases in physical activity um, and overall we, we tried to evaluate the um, the effects of pedometer use on lipids and glycemic control and unfortunately there just weren't that many studies that reported on it there were only seven studies that reported uh, fasting glucose at baseline and um, so so we just didn't have enough of a of a sample size to really to be powered there it, we did show a, a slight decrease in fasting glucose um, among all all uh, patients, not just people with diabetes. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We have from the city Penticton, we have Bob Pope on the line. Go ahead, sir. Oh, hi. What a wonderful study. Um, I've, I've been doing a, a pedometer walking program for three years as an active living recreation coordinator in Penticton, British Columbia. And it's spread to probably 40 communities, and and now the province has picked it up. So by the end of 2008, we could have a quarter of a million people using pedometers. So I'm I'm speaking more as a resource because I've been through so many pedometers. Um, but I, first, my first question was, did you catch or pick up any of the study that the British Columbia Recreation and Parks Association did with the BC Medical Association? Um, I'm not sure about that. There is there was a study, um, and I'm not sure if this is the same one. By Chan was the first author, and Katrine Tudor Locke was the last author. I think that was in Alberta, though. Is uh, that? But, no, um, no. Um, so our, with mine, Penticton was a study, and we had 90 patients. Mm. Unfortunately, we just measured the the doctors did the referrals, but and it was only six weeks. But we measured the success of their lifestyle change rather than, you know, the the blood pressure and, and the body mass index. But um, the results were, uh, I think it was about 75% said they keep going and 83 stuck with it, which was pretty high. But I wanted to just let people know with the, with the pedometers especially, I, I find it's crucial the placement on your hip bone and moving it either way and, and doing 100 steps first. But um, my results are, are mostly people over 50 years old. Half had never been in our computer before, so they're definitely the inactive people. And and just the, the reports on lifestyle change have been phenomenal. So I'd, I'd love to get your recording after. And if, if people need feedback, I use in the States, I bring in the AccuSplit pedometers, but um, we've just picked up the province 500,000 pedometers from uh, a, a fellow called it's called speakwell.com so if if anyone needs it I can I'm, I'm open to be a resource I just love that the doctors are partnering with recreation and and looking at prevention so thank you for doing this 
Thank you so much for your call. Yeah, thank you. You bring up a couple great points that I'd like to highlight. One is the partnership between physicians or other practitioners and community resources. And again, referring back to the Wagner model, that's clearly shown to be an important component of improved care of chronic conditions, of which, of course, obesity and sedentary lifestyle tend to be chronic conditions for most people. But that linkage between the delivery system and the community resources is, I think, very important. And I think at least in the states, we have a lot of challenges with that. Do you have any um, insight or wisdom into how you achieve that success in uh, in Canada or in your province? Oh, in British Columbia? Yeah. Uh, well, what we did right away is we started working with um, the president of our or the of the doctors association in Penticton. And and very strongly, we have the British Columbia Medical Association. So when I when I found the results were, um, you know, life changing, I I thought the next thing to do is get credibility with the the medical association. So we've really tried to build my association try has tried to build a, a very strong relationship with the BC Medical Association and. BCMA were the ones when we announced that we were going to do the 2010 Winter Olympics, they challenged the province, I believe, or encouraged them to do a 20% more physically fit challenge by 2010. So they, they, it's the association of doctors in our province that have been such strong champions for, um, for partnering with the recreation providers. Great. Well, thank you for that. So organized medicine really played a key role. You bet. Great. Well, thank you so much for your call and your encouragement and your input. Thank you. Uh, Brandon, let's go to the next caller, please. A question from Southeast Regional Health Authority. We have Michelle Hopkins on the line. Please go ahead. Hi, it's actually Rose Peacock. I'm sitting here with Michelle. Um, I had a question just about the study. I was thinking about the um, part you were talking about that the people who were doing goal setting and also writing their diaries seem to have um, the best results. And I'm wondering if you think um, that has as much to do with the results as the actual pedometers or if this could almost be translated to a walking club or an exercise group or things that didn't have actually the technical component of the pedometer but just having the goal setting um, components um, for self-management. And I think your Kate Lord in Stanford um, has done a lot in that area as well as far as um, self-management. And just if it's the pedometer or the other components, or do you think it's all equal with these positive results? Yeah, Rose, that's a great question. So, so first, let, just to be clear, all of the studies that we included, at least in the intervention arm, had to include a pedometer. So, so I can't. So, so I don't really have a ton of direct evidence to answer your question. But I'll sort of tell you what those results are, and then give you my intuition about the rest. Um, so. Uh, the the step diary and the step goals were clearly key components of improving physical activity, but part of the problem was that many of the interventions included step goals and step diaries. So there were only um, four studies that didn't include a goal. There were only three studies that didn't include a diary. And it is certainly true that among those few studies that didn't include those components, there were not increases in physical activity. Um, but but that's sort of not quite answering your question, which is not having a pedometer, but just having these other components. Um, the a lot of the interventions had um, 
several of them did in fact have kind of group walking uh, uh, components. Uh, a number had, um, you know, group uh, physical activity kind of counseling sessions. Some had individualized counseling sessions. And um, we were really interested in knowing, okay, well, let's try to tease out what exactly are the components of the interventions that are associated with the greatest improvements in physical activity. And especially when we got to some of the weight loss outcomes, uh, three of the included studies also included um, some dietary counseling. So we wanted to see, well, you know, did the dietary counseling improve the, um, the weight loss in particular? But again, just given the small sample sizes that we were talking about, um, the, um, the kind of fairly big heterogeneity in terms of the differences of the studies, um, we just we were not able to detect any specific component other than the fact that the workplace ones were were consistently um, the lowest achieving in terms of improvements in physical activity. So, um, so I don't so I don't really know the answer to your question, and I think that um, I, I think that. Certainly, in in a large randomized control trial with a whole lot more subjects, a whole lot more subjects that are men and women of a variety of ages, that not having a pedometer, but just having, um, you know, as you say, kind of um, group walking or exercise counseling certainly would make sense for one arm of such a study. Thank you. And thank you for that question. Um, I guess in, in follow-up, Dr. Bravada, any, you know, what about generalizing this to a situation of, say, bicycle riding, where instead of a pedometer, you're measuring either time or you're measuring miles, and uh, the person doing that is keeping a log. Do you have any advice on, or any speculation on, on how well this work may generalize to a setting like that, or even minutes on the treadmill? Right. I, I, you know, my own, I, so I have no knowledge of specific evidence where that's been compared. I think that the answer is that's not been compared, but, but it makes sense, right? It's the same, it's the same kind of um, motivating information. And we haven't really talked about why pedometers work. And I think that one of the reasons why pedometers work is because they provide people with unique um health information about their health behaviors with, as I think you would say, a short feedback loop. So by which I mean that there are very few things that we can do to measure our health and directly impact whatever that outcome is. And I think we were talking earlier and about the fact that certainly you could hop on the scale in the morning and see what your weight is. But even if you did a whole bunch of diet and exercise things during the day, that you're not likely to affect your weight either that night or the next day. But that by putting on a pedometer, you can see where you are. And at the end of the day, if you've not achieved your goal, you can go take a walk around the block after your dinner and, and direct directly um, uh, impact your step count and try to achieve your goal. And I think to your question about keeping a diary about um, cycling or how long you spent, how many laps you did in the pool or whatever, that you're able, if you have a goal and you're able to keep that log, you're able to kind of see patterns over time in much the same way. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And so it sounds like your your sense is that having that process measure, if you will, rather than the outcome of weight, having a really near-term process outcome with a very short feedback loop uh, may be what, what made this so effective. I think so, yeah. 
Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, Brennan, let's go to the next caller, please. Our next question comes from Glen Falls Hospital. We have Jean Huntington on the line. Please go ahead. Thank you. I have a couple questions, if that's okay. I was wondering, did you find in any of the studies that you reviewed that there's a minimal amount of steps that are necessary for improvement in physical activity, for increasing your physical activity, and then improving some of your health status indicators? Um, there, so there was not a minimum amount, and but but part of the 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 real answer to your question is that you know when you do a study of this nature, we're really looking at sort of average effects, and so that if you have a very sedentary patient, maybe somebody who only walks two or three thousand steps per day, as you know, so for example, there were some patients with rheumatoid arthritis, some some patients with um, uh, emphysema, and they had the low baseline physical activity. So for them, by increasing one to two thousand steps per day, that's just such a um, you know a dramatic improvement um, that um, in those studies they actually had improvements in their arthritis parameters and and um, improvements in their um, uh, breathing parameters that we wouldn't have seen necessarily in the overall study because there were only one or two studies that looked at those kinds of outcomes. So, so I think that there is not a, a real kind of minimum improvement um, required for improvements in health outcomes. Um, thank you. The second question would be, because um, we, we have a number of primary care practices in our healthcare system, and if we're going to, you know, apply what you've learned from, you know, this study to um, physicians so that they can, you know, motivate behavior change, do you think it matters? Like, is it really important that the physician try to set, you know, try to talk about the pedometer, do the goal setting? Does it matter if it comes from the nurse? Um, do you have any feel for that? I have no sense that a um, that a physician would be any more or less likely to be able to motivate change than any other kind of health practitioner. In fact, most of the studies um, did not include physicians and were performed by either exercise physiologists or nurses or just other kinds of personnel who had received some intervent, um, you know, a little bit of training. A number of the workplace interventions, for example, were led by, um, you know, they, they got kind of packages that they instituted in their workplace settings. So Colorado on the Move, for example, is an is a organization that's been around for a long time, and they, um, they've done, they've been expanding and, and do uh, interventions both in workplaces, um, in churches, that kind of thing. And so the people who are leading those interventions are by no means clinicians of any kind. Okay, and the last one is, are you familiar with a program out now called Exercises Medicine? And this is a uh, initiative with the AMA and the American College of Sports Medicine to try to improve the health and well-being of uh, patients, and it's encouraging physicians to kind of make a prescription of Exercises Medicine. Have you seen any literature on that yet? No, I haven't. Although, I mean, I think that that sort of squarely fits into the literature about, for example, tobacco cessation and the writing a prescription. You know, so docs talking to patients about um, setting a stop date, setting specifically goal, specific goals for tobacco cessation, and writing that kind of um, prescription for them. So I think that I've, I don't know about the specific program that you're talking about, but I've certainly talked to people who have who 
who've studied a little bit about the prescriptions, and I think that they are likely to to help, although I don't think that they've been studied that well. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your call. Uh, Brandon, next question, please. From New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, we have Simone Walker on the line. Please go ahead. Oh, um, hi. Actually, this is um, Dr. Karen Lee from New York City Department of Health. Um, I had a couple of questions, and one is, um, how were the 10,000 steps set initially as a goal, and how do they relate to um, the uh, physical activity recommendations related to 30 minutes a day most days of the week of, uh, of moderate activity? Um, that's a great question. So the um, the original, I don't know about the very oldest genesis of 10,000 steps. There are some conflicting reports about where it initially came from, but but um, most people agree that it has its roots in um, Japanese walking clubs. And there's a um, there's a slogan called Man Poke, which translates into 10,000 steps per day, and that's sort of the the name of a lot of walking clubs, and was set as a goal. Um, and um, and there have been some studies to evaluate, well, how exactly does the 10,000 step per day goal uh, relate to, as you said, the, um, the physical activity guidelines of 30 minutes per day most days of the week. Now, that's 30 minutes of moderate activity most days of the week. And, um, and some work by um, uh, Katrine Tudor-Locke and others have suggested that um, on average, um, uh, um, people in the United States walk about seven or eight thousand steps per day, and um, and that certainly was borne out in our study. That was the average baseline physical activity. That by um, by wearing a pedometer, they um, on average increase their physical activity by about two thousand steps, getting them to about the ten thousand step per day goal, which actually translated into about thirty minutes of extra walking. Now the um, the big kind of question is well is is that is that enough if you're just counting all the walking that you're doing in the day people can achieve it by all kinds of exercise not necessarily moderate levels of physical activity but at least on a on a just sort of steps you know steps in a day it um the 10,000 steps does actually seem to to correlate fairly well with that 30 minute guideline um, and can I ask just one more quick question? Um, how did you measure, um, how was physical activity measured in most of the studies? Was it just by steps or were there also questionnaires? Um, yeah, so so it was measured a couple of ways. For most of the studies, it was really just um, step counters. So they most of the studies um, gave people pedometers that were sealed um, so that people couldn't look at them. And they ranged from about three days to about 10 days at the very beginning of the intervention and asked people just they um, to come, collect the pedometer, which would have a zero count, and then return them three to seven, ten days later, and that was used as a uh, a measure of baseline physical activity. Um, there were some studies where people, in addition to wearing the pedometer, which they could look at and, and see what their steps were, and as a result, kind of use it as a motivational tool, they would also wear uh, an accelerometer, um, which is another um, device that measures physical activity, but it does so in three dimensions. So 
so up and down motions as well as straight ahead motions, and um, use that to kind of corroborate the steps. Um, and then, yes, people, by keeping these diaries, they would then bring their diaries into the research center, and, and the information from the step diaries were then kind of collated with what was being shown on either the accelerometers or the pedometers. Thank you. Sure. Um, one kind of additional comment to Dr. Lee's question about the guidelines, you know, I mean, there, whereas the 10,000 step per day goal really does seem to um, correlate fairly well with the Surgeon General's 30 minutes um, of moderate activity guideline, there has been you know, a, a proliferation of other guidelines, including um, the one uh, from the uh, American College of Physicians showing or recommending uh, 60 minutes of moderate physical activity most days of the week for weight maintenance and 90 minutes of moderate physical activity most days of the week for weight loss. And um, and so, you know, I, I think that there that's, that's another area where I think more study needs to be done. So for some people, if you are quite sedentary, achieving 10,000 steps per day would achieve those other much higher goals. Um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, I, I think that we really need to, to do a little more work there to kind of see how those are all matching up. Our next question comes from HQSI. We have Andrew Miller on the line. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. I just, um, I, I'm just impressed how amazingly simple these the interventions that were effective were could you just define what a step diary is is it something as simple as just writing down the number of steps taken during the day that's right on the back of an envelope okay thank you yeah absolutely from kaiser permanente we have jan ground on the line please go ahead thanks um i will say that i studied as an exercise physiologist many years ago so i guess i am one by training and one of the things that I learned, or actually the biggest thing I learned after I was done that training is that the hardest part of all this is just behavior change in general. And when the first question was about what's, what do you recommend for a pedometer, I, I just can't overemphasize that enough. I went traveling internationally with my in-laws, and I said, let's all wear a pedometer just for fun. And I'm very healthy and in great shape, and they're not as in good shape. And they were fine with it until the first thing broke or... Um, they dropped it or it reset, and I work for Kaiser that really promotes prevention and gives out pedometers constantly. They're really cheapy pedometers, and I'm pretty active, so um, I pretty much give it up real quick. So I just wanted to really emphasize that, that um, if we're really going to focus on the people that need it most, um, I'm glad you recommended a pedometer because I'm going to go out and get that one and see if I, I can get my parents and in-laws to use that one. Um, the other thing I just want to comment on is, I just lost my train of thought, so I might just um, give it a, oh, I thought it was interesting that you said the average is 7,000 steps. Um, I've used it on and off in the last several years, and I'm, I'm active, I get lots of exercise, but I'm not active at work. I sit at a desk a lot, and I'd say my average is more like two or 3,000. Mm. So just FYI, I guess I must be more sedentary at work than most people. Or you do different kinds of activities. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jan, I think that the other point that you make about um, that 
people's kind of readiness um, is uh, to to change their physical activity is really the key component here. And one thing that we haven't talked about is um, kind of the the overall self selection of the participants in this study, and um, uh, that uh, they're. When, when we think about the model where we talk about people um, who are in the pre-contemplation stage, so those are people who are not active and not really intending to change their physical activity versus people who are kind of in the contemplation phase, so those are folks who are not active but, you know, uh, they've set a New Year's resolution to do something about it versus people who are in the preparation phase, so maybe they're starting to do a little bit of activity versus people who are taking action, so people who are reg regularly active but just recently so, versus people who are in the maintenance phase. So those are folks who are regularly active, sounds like you're in that phase and have done so over the long term. And I think that when, when we're thinking about the kinds of people that are even in any way a target for a pedometer intervention, it would certainly not be someone who is in the maintenance phase, right, because they're already doing physical activity. And it's also, by conversely, not someone who's in the pre-contemplation phase. So that's, you know, somebody who's not active and not really thinking about it, but that, um, but that it's the folks in between, so the people who are not active but, but want to change, those people, they may not be ready for a pedometer, but they certainly may be ready to talk to their clinicians about it. But it's, you know, maybe it's the folks who are in the kind of um, contemplation preparation stages who might really be able to benefit from one of the, from using a pedometer. And I just, the self-behavioral change thing is such a big deal. I just think if if whoever is explaining the benefit of using a pedometer to encourage you to take more steps can be really um, educational about the fact that, you know what, it doesn't matter if it matches exactly your steps or um, to really encourage people to understand it's just motivating you to walk more because you have engineering types that as soon as they realize it doesn't match their steps exactly, they don't want to do it anymore. Or as soon as they realize it reset, they don't want to do it. And we need to help people get past that because people that generally are in the just starting this and they're just ready to do it, it just won't take much for them to say, oh, I give up. Right. Absolutely. Great. Thanks for your call and your comments. We have time for one more short question. We have from Shasta County Public Health, we have Teresa Ricard-Borba on the line. Please go ahead. Teresa, I think you're still muted there. Sorry. Are we go on? ahead. We can hear you now. Okay, hi. I was wondering, in any of the studies, did you use any incentive to motivate the people to do to participate in the study? Yes, several of the included articles provided uh, um, anything from as you know some small incentives like little certificates of yay you achieved your goal for the week, uh, t-shirts to um, uh, cash for uh, enrollment, and you know sort of in the fifty dollar ish range seemed like kind of a popular one. Not many of the included studies uh, in, um, reimbursed patients for their participation, subjects for the participation, but. But a bunch of them did have little kind of, you know, cheerful postcards or supportive emails even, if, if you would consider that an incentive. Well, but a lot of times that's all we have to offer them. So, And the other thing with our morbidly obese patients, if the pedometer is not sitting vertical and it rides horizontal on their waistline, 
I'm not, I was not able to get them to wear a pedometer because it didn't read accurately. Did mm. you find that in any of your studies? Um, not that many talked about those specific limitations, although um, I, I think in the intro they were talking about the fact that I'm doing a study of um, patients undergoing bariatric surgery, and we certainly have found that to be true. Um, what seems to work a little bit better in a more practical way is that most pedometers, um, most good pedometers come with a, a little clip that typically is intended for women to use when they're wearing a dress and they don't have a belt or a waistline. And so you, you clip the this little string onto your clothing and then the string is, is looped around the pedometer. And so honestly, what we've done with our morbidly obese patients is just have everyone use that clip and you're able to then really get it positioned nicely right over their dominant thigh. So... Great. Well, thank you for your question, and thanks for the answer. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for questions today. It has been absolutely a wonderful discussion of the issues brought up by the article. Um, and Dr. Bravada, do you have uh, any cl brief closing comments for us? Well, again, I would just say thank you so much, and that um, I think that pedometers um, are probably a, a useful device, especially for sedentary patients, and I think that using them in conjunction with a step goal, uh, 10,000 steps per day or any other goal, and a step diary um, may, may go uh, uh, well in terms of helping us to achieve our um, obesity treatment and prevention guidelines. Well, great. Thank you. And I just want to echo the, the comments of one caller that it is just an elegantly simple intervention, and that's part of what's so exciting about it and makes it quite applicable in our practices. So again, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Bravada, for your participation in today's call uh, and all of you on the phone for an enlightening discussion and set of questions. As a reminder, uh, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on January 16th. Our featured guest uh, will be Dr. Ian Williamson uh, discussing his article, Antibiotics and Topical Steroids for Treatment of Acute Sinusitis. Uh, Author in the Room is sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate change and improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for being part of this call. Happy holidays and safe travels. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for joining. You may all disconnect at this time.